Okay, good morning. Today's daf is daf Chav Zayin. Today's shiur is Nishmas Tzvida Ben Moshe. May he have, may his neshama be an aliyah and his memory be a blessing. Um, today's um, it's also for a fush leima of Yitzchak Yehuda Ben Miriam and Chai Chaika Bas Baba Bechla and Dennis. The Salman Mordechai Ben Miram, and they have a complete and speedy recovery. Okay, so we got up to it's about the 11th last line of Chofov Amud Beis 26b, and the first word of line is Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamil. That's where we have to, really, uh, last, uh, last quarter of this Mesechta. Um, so Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamil, I mean, Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamil says, so, sorry, Rabbi Shimon, yeah, Ha'oymelech Havera Hishileini Chalokecho Va'eleich Ve'ekvar Es Abba. Can I borrow your robe? Your shirt and go visit my father, Shehu Choyle, who is sick. It says, And he arrives and he finds that his father had passed away. He tears it, but he does a proper repair. But when he returns home, he has to return the shirt and pay the difference because now you're giving him. A torn shirt. If you do not let him know why you're going, why you're borrowing your shirt, says Hareze, you're not allowed to touch the shirt. Um, so very interestingly, so what's happening here? When you tell him you're going to visit your sick, when someone tells them that they're going to visit their sick um, relative, then they kind of saying he's kind of when he gives you consent to or when he gives you when he lends you his shirt he kind of has in the back of his mind that it might sadly be uh, more uh, a might events might take a horrible turn and you're going to need to do kriya so he's and he still lets you he doesn't say anything so implicit in his is permission to do kriya however if you never told him why you're going you just said i need can i borrow your shirt for the weekend or something like that and he says yes then he's not giving you permission to do anything Besides Boris shirt, so it would be forbidden to tear his shirt. Very interesting. We see that unless he actually has intent, um, unless he actually gives you at least um, subtle or implicit permission, you're not allowed to decree on someone else's shirt. Um, and this is even if you intend to pay him back. And even if he gives you permission, you still have to repair it and pay the difference. Again, that we would know. Even, I mean, in Baba Kama discusses, but obviously if you ask someone, can I damage your property? And they say yes. Well, I mean, there's still a question if you're allowed, is that not, is it not also intrinsically to do damage? But even if they say yes, you'd have to pay for it. Unless they specify yes, and you don't have to pay for it. But assumingly here, where he lends you his shirt, thinking in the back of his mind, or, okay, so it's kind of like in the fine print that you might need to do Kriya, not giving you permission to damage it without paying back, you would have to pay back. Just an interesting question to think about is, is it a mitzvah bo bavera? Uh, sorry, if you do kriya, let's say you take your friend's shirt, you don't tell him why you're borrowing it, or you're wearing your friend's shirt, and then you, or you borrow a borrowed shirt, and then chas shalom, the person hears about a relative who has niftar, and he does kriya on that shirt with no permission. So he wasn't allowed to, it was also, and he's damaging someone else's property. Is he yoitze kriya? Does he fulfill his obligation of doing kriya? 
Or is it a mitzvah of Aveira, a mitzvah of doing Kriya, through the Aveira of damaging someone else's property, and therefore he does not fulfill the mitzvah. So that's, a, that's something to think about. Would you even be Yotze if you don't have permission? Yeah. Why, yeah. I think this for a while do we say that there's automatic permission to do Kriya. When you tell him you're going, you're borrowing the shirt to visit one sick, sick parent, why is there automatic? So I think um, one explanation could be because um, I mean besides for it's ex- there's to a degree it's expected obviously you're going to want to be a, a person's going to want to be able to do Kriya. They're going to want to be able to display mourning. Imagine it, it doesn't look good for a mourner someone who has just lost their parent to walk around with a full untorn garment. So, so that's there's going to be these added motivations that the person really wants to do Kriya and therefore you would um, everyone? Yes. Uh, why do they do Kriya straight away the minute the parent is nipped because when we see uh, at the Lawaya uh, they only do the Kriya at the at the Levaya. Yeah. So so um, what is the difference between in those times and today's times? I'm actually not sure. I'm actually not sure. It does seem from Al Gamora that the primary halach is to do Kriya when a person hears about the news of the obviously of the death of the relative or the Avbaizdinois Rav. It seems yeah, it does seem to be based on uh, when they hear the news, so I'm not sure why we, I'm not sure why we only do Kriya at the Leviya. I'm not but sure. But does the mourner do his own Kriya? Because at the Leviya, the rabbi does yeah. the Kriya. So, I'm wondering if the reason is that the rabbi, because remember we've seen for a parent it's on one, which side it is, and for other relatives it's on the other side, and how long the tear has to be. I'm wondering if maybe that's why we just leave it up to the Hebra Kedusha or the Rav to show the mourner how to do Kriya. Maybe that's why we leave it for them. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Please, later I'll, I'll ask around or look it up if I get a chance. But if you don't go to the funeral, you do your own Kriya anyway. Yeah, a relative would do Kriya yes, anyway. When my yeah. mother passed away, I didn't go to, to the funeral in Australia and I had to do Kriya as soon as I heard. Yeah, this, I'm saying any, I mean, it seems from here anyway that that's the halacha, whether you're going, whether one's going to the funeral yeah. or not, they do kriya. I'm not sure why we do it differently. I'll have to look into it. I think it might just be because you're on in uh, until the funeral and that you do it there. Well, we'll see. Okay, maybe you're saying there's maybe an added aspect of kovara maiz to tear publicly. We did see earlier a discussion yeah. of for your rebi, etc. You should do it publicly. But let's, I'll be able to look it up. Tonner Abonon Choyle, Shem, sorry, if there's a sick person whose relative dies, we do not tell him. Shem et titorif dato olof, because he might, it will tear at his mind, and he'll get sicker. Obviously, we don't do Kriya in front of him, because then he'll work it out, and you don't tell, and you and you obviously tell women to be quiet, and they mustn't cry and chat about it in front of him. And this is a very important halacha, but very interesting one. Obviously, you have to inform someone of the death of a relative, so that they can fulfill the mitzvah of Avelos. They have to be able to do Kriya, they have to be able to mourn, 
for the seven keep all the halachas. But where it's a sickly person who it's going to be detrimental to their health to hear such bad news, um, you would not be allowed to. I mean, it's something that uh, people have to be very sensitive and very careful about what news you tell and what you talk about in front of a sick person. You don't want to tell them stuff that will weaken them or distress them because, again, um, it's, we see how sensitive and, and insightful the Chachomim were, but we know that any uh, emotional stress you put on a person has physical ramifications. So if they're already sickly and weak, then you never know what's going to tip him, what's going to cause the deterioration. So that's uh, something to be very uh, considerate about how you handle these matters. And it would be the same thing as, again, if you have a sickly person and you want to tell them to start preparing, you know, is your will in order or is all that? It's got to be done very sensitively because you have these concerns of if you start speaking to them about death, have you got your will in order? Have you got your da-da-da? You're going to really... Um, you, you can really uh, weaken them further. It says, You do kriya on a child, on a mana, because of anguish. It's not the mitzvah of kriya. Children, at least uh, the Roshia says, if he's under bar mitzvah, if he's under the age of chinuch, obviously there's no mitzvah for him to do kriya. However, you still do kriya because it increases the grief. If you see a child do Kriya because they've lost a close relative, it inspires grief. I don't know if inspires is the right word. It uh, increases it. It uh, brings about um, grief, and that's why you do it, but not because the child is obligated to. Interestingly, here the Rosh says if he's under Chinuch. I thought Amanas never had a mitzvah of Avelus, but maybe we're saying Kriya is different to Avelus, um, and, but yeah, but at, at least you would still do Kriya because of Agbath Nefesh. We saw this before, that someone does Kriya for their mother-in-law and father-in-law, out of honor for his wife. And again, remember we said with all these ex-mourning because of a relative who's mourning, we don't have those practices. The person, a mourner, shouldn't hold children. Shouldn't play with children because it will bring him to laugh and it's uh, distasteful to the people. It's distasteful to see a mourner playing and have and laughing it's dis- and it's disrespectful to the to the deceased. A very interesting halacha because a lot of mourners say they want to see their grandchildren. They want to hold their young children. They want to babies off. They're very comforting if you, um, children. But we actually see here the halacha is uh, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't bring children next to them. Uh, to, to them, and sh- they shouldn't really be playing with children. Um, and then we go on to the next line of the mission is that the those the mourners, when they're having their mourners meal, they don't sit on upright chairs, they sit on uh, overturned chairs, or on the floor. It says, if someone's going to the base of if he's very familiar with the mourner, he can have the meal with them on overturned bed. And if not, he should have he should he should have the meal on an upright bench. If someone's very close to the mourners, he can actually sit with them on the benches, on the low benches that the mourners um, have. 
Interesting. Yeah, some say they know. In, in Libor Gaspo, if you see that the mourners don't seem to be displaying mourning, they don't seem to be distressed, then you go sit on the low chairs, on the bench, on the upright chair, and join them in so that they see that there's mourning going on and it impresses upon them. That, I guess, yeah, we can use the word, inspires grief in them. It's another way to learn that piece. Robert Isra Bay Milsa Olegabe Ababa Mota. The who Ababa Minyumi. Rather, a certain thing happened, uh, a sad thing happened to Rob. He lost a close relative, and Ababar Marsa, who is Ababar Minyomin, went to visit him. Rav Zokif. So Rav straightened the, set up the chair so that Ababar Minyomi could sit on it. Ababar Minyomi, coffee. Ababar Minyomi says, No, I'm sitting by Rav, I must turn it over. And Omar Kamalais by Data, the High Tuba Rabbana, look how little uh, knowledge, cons, uh, understanding this uh, the scholar has, this young scholar has. I, it seems. I think the simplest answer is he wasn't familiar. And only if you're very familiar, close to the mourners, are you allowed to sit on the overturned benches. Otherwise, you should sit on the upright benches. That would be um, the one way of learning that. And, and I like that. That fits in well with the word das. Because das often has the connotations of uh, how you almost relate to the wisdom. Um, having internalized it. So Abba Minyumim was a little bit, uh, what would you say, uh, he didn't get the social cues and he thought he was very close to Rava when he wasn't really. And that's why Rava was criticizing him for his das. He couldn't uh, pick up on these social cues. Yeah, that was my own thing, but maybe that's one shot in the Gomorrah there. If someone goes from one place to another, if he's already traveling and then he hears about uh, the death of a relative, he must limit his business dealings. And if not, if he can't, then he must, and he must try um, use the other people who he's traveling with. I try again. Obviously, it's a case where he has to, but he can't. Now, we already learned earlier on in the Masechta that an Ovel is allowed to do Melocha where it's Hefzeh Merubah. If he's going to suffer a substantial loss, he's allowed to work. So that's why someone actually say, this is referring to a parent who he said, even, uh, even in a substantial loss, he should still do work. Um, others want to say, no, really what we're saying is that we're going on that point of a Hefzid Merubah, but we're saying that, look, to, not only if it's a loss, but if it's to provide with your basic needs. Travelers, if you travel traveling somewhere, you're going to like, pack enough food or provisions for the journey. And counting on when you arrive in the next town or wherever you do, you'll just do a little bit of trading, you'll get some money, and then you'll support yourself. So a traveler, because of that, that sort of person or anyone who really who needs their basics um, would be allowed to do malacha. Okay. At what point you turn over the bed? Now, interestingly, this is a specific example of mourning. One of the signs of Avelus is you turn over the beds. Um, but it's also, the one opinion says that it's basically just saying, when do you start Avelus? So, says, as soon as the mace leaves the house. Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua says, no, from when you seal the coffin. I, according to Rashi, it's always, he always translates as sealing the coffin, which would imply if let's say you seal the coffin in place X to be buried and you're going to carry it to case one, it's going to be a few hours or a few days, you would already start mourning then. Whereas according to Rabbeinu Tam and other Rishonim, and if I, if I understood, this is how Shulchan Aruch Paskins, it's basically when the grave is filled in. That's when the Avelos starts. Um, 
מעשה שמייס רבן גמליאל הזוקן, כיוון שיוצא מפסח בייסו, אמר להם רבי אליעזר, כופו מתוסכם. As soon as he was taken outside the house, Rabbi Eliezer told them, turn over the beds. And once they sealed the casket, he told them, now go and turn over the bed. So, oh, we already turned over the bed based on the psak of Rabbi Eliezer. So that's in just the, the daily event where they were being guarded. One rabbi had already told them to do it at the earlier stage. At what point are you allowed to turn over the bed? Turn the bed, sorry, upright. I put it back to normal on Erev Shabbos. So now this is again, because remember, you don't do signs of mourning on Shabbos. So obviously on Erev Shabbos, you still have to, he's still the mourner, still in our veilus. But at what point to start, get ready for Shabbos, can he turn over the bed? So I mean, I'm in Chulamala, from Mincha onwards. You should not sit on it until it's dark. Aye? The morning still carries on throughout Erev Shabbos, but you'll have to start getting ready for Shabbos from the afternoon. And on Motzei Shabbos, even if he's only sitting one day, I let's say his shiva ends on Sunday. So basically, what's he going to do? He's going to sit down daven on Sunday, be comforted by the mourners and stop his mourning. He must still turn over the beds. Um, we learned in a bright so that you don't only turn over the bed of the mourner, you turn over any beds. And you've got to also remember when it says mitosa, they would often just sit on their bed. So it's also kind of saying the chairs, all the chairs in the house. And even if he has 10 beds spread out throughout the house, that he might, you know, one basically has a chair in the dining room, the lounge, the kitchen, his bedroom, all of those, you must turn them all. And even if they're five brothers and one of them dies, all the brothers have to turn over the beds in their houses. Yeah, just before we go on, what's interesting about this thing of a mitah, we see it's not unique to the mourner. It's not a practice that the mourner does. It's almost on the house of mourning. Some use this phrase, of uh, there's, there's the din of mourning, of aspects of mourning that fall on the house of where the mourning is taking place, like turning over the bed. It's not uniquely the chair and the bed of the mourner that you're turning over. You're turning over all the beds and chairs. Um, and remember, and also to bear in mind, remember the reason for turning over the bed is different to other sides of mourning because it's also from the aspect, why do we turn over the bed? So remember we learned because it signifies the turning of the Tzelem Elohim. This Tzelem Elohim changed from being Tzelem Elohim to not being Tzelem Elohim. So we turn over the beds, which symbolizes that. Um, similarly, as we saw earlier, just learning Torah. Learning Torah is also something that is not actually it's not only for the mourner as we saw it's in the house of mourning you shouldn't give a shir in the house of mourning we saw that so that's not necessarily on the mourner even if he's not listening or even if it's halachas he's allowed to learn you don't have the torah learning going on in the house of mourning and according to some opinions interesting some also hold that by greeting very um, amazing it's not just that you don't greet the mourners it's you also don't greet people in the house, or at least in the room of mourning. If you had a mitter that was used primarily for storing things on, kind of as a, a counter or a 
chest of uh, kind of yeah, counter or thing of drawers, then you would not have to turn it over. Dargesh ain't so At Dargesh, you don't have to turn it over, you can just um, lean it upright. I not leave it in its normal way, but lean it upright. Uh, says, no, not that you turn it up. You undo the loops and it falls down. We'll clarify as we go along. It says, what is a dargesh? This good luck bed. Thank you. So, interestingly, seems to have been this chair that they kept in their house. For good luck, it was for the guardian angel of the house. It's a big discussion in Shulchan Aruch. Sounds a bit like Darke uh, Mori, like uh, non-Jewish witchcraft practices. But okay, people had this practice of, of having this bed, this Dargesh, this bed in the house for the angel, let's call it for the angel to sit on. So that's what we're suggesting the Dargesh is. So the Gomorrah asks... Oh wait, by a king it's taught So when a king's in mourning, everyone sits on the floor and he sits on the dargash. Now you're telling me there's something that he never ever sits on, this chair that they leave with no one sitting on, he's now that he's a mourner, he's going to go sit on it. So it doesn't make sense. So might give law... Um, Yeah, so Matki Floravashi, Ravashi challenges. He says, My kushi, midi de have a chilevishtia. No, we know the mourner does things differently, and that's what the king does. Up till now, it would be degrading for the king to accept food, to be provided with food by someone else. Kind of, sign of we, uh, yeah, dependency, which a king shouldn't have. But now that he's a mourner, he's not allowed, to, people have to provide him with food. So, so, so to, yeah, John generally wouldn't sit on the dargation, now he would, which is this. Good luck, bad. So there's no elakasha. What actually is a question, elakasha or kashif? There's a question. It's the following. The Tanya we learned from the Brisa Dargeish. I'm not sorry, like a voice elazoikvah. This Dargeish, you don't have to um, turn it upside down, but you should lean it up against the wall. Of the er said the gadama, I'm not sorry, like voice. But if it is this good luck bed, why should you not turn it over? Not only his bed, but all the beds in the house. So if the darg, so why should you not turn the dargesh over? If you're telling me it's a regular bed, it's just this one that's a good luck bed, why not turn it over? Well, my kasha, me need to have a mitam, we'll get us to kalim. No, what do you mean? This isn't a chair or a bed that's used for sitting or lying on. It's similar to the chair or the bed that's used to store things on, as I mentioned, like a countertop. As we learned in the Brisa, if you have a bed set aside to keep things on, you don't have to turn it over. Specifically ones for sleeping or sitting on that you have to turn over. So why would you have to turn over the Dagarish? No, so it says, But if there is a difficulty, as the following. You undo the loops and it falls by itself. Why would it have these kartuvin? Most beds that they had were made with ropes tied across the frame. So you have the wooden frame 
in a rectangle and they would weave and tie ropes across the top and that would be the support of the bed. This Arisa de Gada, as we'll see, but I might as mention it now, was made, it was a sheet of leather with straps coming in and then there were loops attached to the frame of the bed and you would tie those straps to the frame of the, to those loops that are attached to the frame of the bread. So when it says undo the loops, it means undo those straps from the loops. And you can imagine then the leather sheet that's tied across as the base of the bed just collapses. So what the dark, so um, Rabbi Shimon Gamil says we're discussing this bed, this special type of bed, which would not be the Arsa de Gada, which would be a normal type of bed. So Kiasa Ravim officer Leahu Mirabonan. When Ravim came, he said, and Rav was his name of this other sage, who was frequent, who frequented the leather market. My dargesh, what is a dargesh? I said, someone asked Rabin, what's a dargesh? So Arsa he says it's this leather bed as I've just described. So that's what a dargesh is, not this good luck bed. There is such a thing as a good luck bed, but that is different alochas. That's a different thing. This, this dargesh is this bed, this bed, not the usual one that was used by ropes to make the base, but a leather sheet. And pulled taut with these straps that you tie to the loops in the frame of the bed. A dargesh is tied from within, whereas a mitter is tied... From on top of it, as I said, you tie the ropes over the frame to for a regular bed. For a dargesh, you tie the straps of the leather to into the frame like this, but on the, on the inside. That you loosen it and you let the leather just fall to the ground. That's how that's how you do kafir samita. By a dargesh. This bed that has posts is basically a bed which has two posts and you hang a on either end and you hang a sheet over kind of like a mosquito net that you can't turn upside down if you think about it because it's not going to balance on the two posts at the head and the foot of the bed. So you just um, put it upright. Tonu Rabbonin, Yoshen al-Gabe Kisa al-Gabe Uddayna. If he sleeps on top of a chair, on top of a mortar, or Kedoyle Mizu al-Gabe Karko, even he does even better, he sleeps on the ground, Lo Yotso Chavosi does not fulfill his obligation. He does not fulfill obligation, because as we've said, the turning of the bed is an independent halacha to where he sits or sleeps. The turning of the bed is to represent the, as we said, the, the tzelem elokim being turned, and that's why you do it anyway. And Omer doesn't mean he, what halacha hasn't he fulfilled, he hasn't fulfilled the obligation to turn over his bed. So he can't, the ovel, the ovel can't say, no, I'm not going to bother, I'm going to leave my bed as it is and I'll sleep on the floor. Much more uncomfortable, so much better. He says, no, you're missing the point, because that's not why we do. You can sweep and dust the base of You can wash the cups and plates and uh, cutlery in the base of And you don't bring mugmar or besomim into the house of the ovel. 
Uh, Mugmar was, uh, it was this um, incense, yeah, or, the, or wine that they used to sprinkle for to improve the fragrance, but let's just call it air freshness. So you don't bring air freshness and into the house of the Ovel. It says, You don't say the brocha on Mugmar and Basamim in Beis Ovel, which implies, I see It just implies you're not allowed to say the brocha on it, but you can still bring it into the house. So our price has said that you don't bring it into the house at all. This price seems to say you can bring it in, you just don't say the brocha. So it says, There's no difficulty. Here's in the house of the ovel, the actual room where the ovel sits, and here's in the house where the comforters would sit. Um, um, yeah, it seems that in the place where the ovel um, goes by himself there you shouldn't but in a place where you have lots of people gathered to com- comfort him then obviously you could use some air freshener interesting someone who say base of ovel refers to where the mace is I almost before burial and base amenachmim is where he's just sitting shiva there you would be allowed spices just an interesting side question would you when the, when you do have doll in a base of ovel do you say Boremine Besomim? Does the mourner, or let's say if the mourner is doing Abdallah, does he say Boremine Besomim and spell, smell the spices on Motzei Shabbos at Abdallah? So uh, I know the Prima Godim says very interestingly, he says, uh, uh, why do we do um, Besomim? Why do we smell Besomim? To uh, settle us, to calm us down, to alleviate the distress of losing the Neshama Yaseira, the extra Neshama we had for Shabbos. So the... Uh, so I was thinking, the Prima Godim says, he doesn't get a Neshama Yaseira, an Ovel. Fascinating idea. Neshama doesn't get a Neshama Yaseira, so he doesn't have to say, there's no point in saying, and smelling the spices um, on Motzei Shabbos, because he's not suffering that loss. I was thinking, that sounds quite radical, why would he, that he doesn't get a Neshama Yaseira, but either way, it is for extra tanu, for extra enjoyment and stuff. So maybe for the, so, so that could be why the mourner doesn't get it, because he doesn't want this extra dimension of Simcha and Oneg, on Shabbos because he's a mourner um, but I was thinking we could say a little bit easier don't know if it's true or not but maybe you don't want to alleviate the extra distress so on Mosei Shabbos he's feeling extra distress granted it's not necessarily because of the grief of mourning it's it's uh, stimulated by the lack of the, nesho- the leaving the departure of the Neshobi Yaseira so let him feel that extra distress but I'm actually not sure what the custom is I don't know if anyone knows offhand if a mourner says um then let's go on to the new Mishnah. We don't, we're going to discuss, remember we said that the, we provide for the mourner. The food, the meal that the mourners eat, either at least the first meal, if not the first day, if not the whole of Shiva, the, the neighbors, the community provides food. He doesn't eat from his own food, as we'll see. He's provided food. So now we're going to discuss how to serve that food. It says, You don't, when you take him to the base of you don't take the food on fancy trays or fancy salad bowls or fancy bowls. And not in uh, large baskets. Ella in these regular boring baskets. You don't say, on the Cholamoid, Aval, 
that's a special benching that they used to do. So even though on Cholamoy they would eat the Surah Avora, they don't say the special... Oh, the, no, there was a special bracha that they actually used to say. They would, you still, on Cholamoy, you still stand in the in the rows that the mourner walks first, and you offer him condolences, and then they go home straight away, because they're not going to have this uh, public meal um, on Cholamoy. Or, yeah, they don't mourn in public, so therefore, yeah, so therefore they can go home after they've stood in these rows and offered their condolences. They're not going to go and sit with them while they have this havara, suda savara, the morning meal. You don't leave the coffin, the beer, in the street on Cholamoid. To not increase people saying has paid him. Um, there are two ways of understanding this. The one is that, obviously, generally you don't do a hesped on Cholamoid. So don't leave the beer in the street. Yeah. So, so why would you be having this beer in the street that um, people would be saying hesped him over? So we must be discussing a Tamud Chochum. A Tamud Chochum has a hesped anyway. Um, so the concern is that if you leave the Tamud Chochum's coffin in the street and people are coming and eulogizing and mourning over it, then people are going to start doing that for regular people, which you don't. You, regular people, you just bury without a husband. It's only Tamidei Chachomen that you bury with a husband on Cholamoid. So that would be... Uh, I think let's go with that explanation. It says, And you do not need Noshim, leave Noshim there any time out of honor, respect for their self-dignity. Um, Yeah, the concern is there'll be certain bodily discharges that will be degrading to the woman. So they never left in public in the street, even for eulogies. Yeah. We're going to a whole lot of different practices that they changed by mourners. At first they would deliver food to the base of oh just one step back so just the beginning of the mission I should have explained it outside is you, when you take in the food to the house of mourner you don't take it on fancy platters and present it beautifully in a fancy um, way like you're having a like you would if you were taking something for Shabbos or Yom Tov or catering for a Simcha no you take it in simple bowls you, you, you take it in the tinfoil uh, packages and you leave it like that you don't uh, put it uh, on nice displays Okay, now we're going to discuss all of this. At first, they used to, when they would take um, food to the base of Oval, if it was for wealthy people, they'd take it on silver and golden um, trays, etc. And when it was for poor people, it would be of like simple peeled willow baskets. Baskets made of willow twigs. And that caused a lot of embarrassment to the poor people. So they instituted that out of covert for the Aniyim, they would take it in, if all mourners had to be taken their meals in these simple bowls. Interesting, it seems that it's not like I said. I said intrinsically there's a problem with taking it in fancy bowls because it's morning, it's not a time of celebrating, so you don't need these fancy displays and platters and beautifully a beautifully laid out buffet. You, a buffet. you just give them the regular 
just give it to them in regular bowls. Um, but here it seemed to actually be that they used to, but then it would cause embarrassment to the Aniyim, so they stopped. Okay. At first, they used to give, when they'd give the mourners what to drink, they'd give it to wealthy mourners in white glass. It was a much more refined, pure, expensive glass. And poor people in colored glass. And the Aniyim were embarrassed. So they instituted that you all mourners have to be served this meal in um, with colored glass, the cheaper glass. Uh, I should highlight, why is it all of a sudden, we don't say that if you're rich you can't have um, golden plates in your home because a poor person will be embarrassed because he's having on regular plates at his house. It's not because remember this Suda... Firstly, there were always this Suda, the Suda Havra, was done in the public, in the street. And not only that, the other meals, there were always people coming to the mourner and coming to visit him. So it's a much more public display of his financial status. It's, if all the friends come and give him food on this fancy gold and silver, everyone sees it. It's, it's a very public meal. Whereas, um, and if it's a poor person and you bring it in all these plain tinfoil containers... It's very public, so you're kind of really um, highlighting who's wealthy and who's poor, which is a bit embarrassing for the poor people. And it says, <coughs> At first they used to uncover the face of the deceased if he was wealthy, and cover the face of the Aniyim, because the Aniyim's faces were very dark because of the hunger. Would be embarrassed. So again, this is they used to uncover because when the corpse is lying there at peace and looking good, and you see that, and it's actually you feel an extra loss for what's gone on in the world. So it's a covered for the mates. Everyone grieves more. But if it's an oni whose face has turned dark and distorted because of his poverty, then you would want it covered. That doesn't increase covered hamais. The problem is, all the Aniyim see that, oh wait, look, Hashirim gets treated differently to us, and when I die, everyone's going to know how poor I was, etc. It's quite embarrassing. So they instituted that you leave the face covered. They used to, at first, take um Wealthy people out on uh, on Dargesh, that's special type of bed we learned about, and Aniyim on a regular beer. And Aniyim would be embarrassed again because they see, look how they're going to be treated. When they die, they're going to be treated differently to other people. So they instituted that out of covert for Aniyim, everyone must be carried on the same sort of. At first, if there was someone who died from certain stomach issues, that there was a bad smell coming from them, they'd put mugmar uh, fragrances by the mace. And then those who suffered these ailments while they're alive would get all embarrassed because they'd think, wait, when I die, they're going to do that. And everyone knows I died with these stomach issues. So that's quite embarrassing. So he can So therefore they instituted that you do this for everyone. You put these fragrances so that you can't tell why the person died. Did he die from this embarrassing illness? If a woman was a nida and then died, they would do tefillah on all the things she had touched while she was alive. We know that a nida is tome. And anything she touches, she makes tome. 
So then they might be it. Well, you need us chayos, misbashos, but women who are nidos, who are alive, would get embarrassed and think, be concerned, stressed that, oh, if they die, everyone's going to know they died as a nida. So he can issue madbilim al gabe kolanoshim. So therefore they instituted that you do tefillas kalim on everything that belonged that of the of the woman um, out of respect for nidos chayos. So you always do tefillah on their clothes, etc. Anything that they would have that any woman, whether a nid or not, would have touched while they were alive. Similarly, they used to do tefillah for the kalim of a zav who died. But then the Zavim who were alive started getting embarrassed and concerned. Look, everyone's going to know what died a Zav. So he then they instituted that you do tefillah on everything for everyone. So that out of respect for the Zavim Chaim, for the living Zavs. Very, this is a very important line, very practical. He says, There was an early time when the expenses that they would, would for the deceased to bury the person were made, were more harsh on the relatives than his death. Till family members used to abandon their relatives and flee. They would dress them in such fancy expensive shrouds and use fancy expensive coffins and all these things and maybe put adornments on them, etc. So that the cost of burying this, the person was very, very expensive. And it was too distressing that the relatives would often just leave their deceased and run off. came along and he acted lightly with himself. Um, and he went out with simple linen garments. And therefore he changed it and that became the minna. Oh, if Rabban Gamliel, the great Rabban Gamliel, the Nasi, is being buried in simple linen shrouds. You know, that's also good enough for me. Even to use very cheap canvas um, canvas. So interesting. At first it was done out of covered farm house. They would dress up the mace. But it actually got out of hand to the expenses. And that's when Ramon Gamliel stood in and he said, Look, bury me in a simple in simple clothes so that people see it's fine. And that became the standard practice. We said that you don't leave the coffin in the street during Cholomoids to not encourage eulogies. It says Omar Papa There's no such thing as the festival regarding a Tamar Chacham and uh, there's no such thing as Cholamoid regarding the Tamar Chacham and definitely there's no such thing as Chanukah Purim I, these are days that you normally do not offer eulogies on Cholamoid, Chanukah and Purim but for a Tamar Chacham you do this is specifically in front of the the mourner but not when it's not in front of him I'll t- we'll see the short tale explain it says oh in is that true? For Rav Kahana sat there, Rav Zvid min Nardai before Nara. Rav Kahana eulogized Rav Zvid who lived in Nardai in from Nara. So Amar Rav Papi Yom Shmuel Hoyso Hoyo Havei Ukafon of Dami. No, when you hear about it, it's like he's in front of you, and that's why Rav Kahana could eulogize Rav Zvid. So what are we saying? Very interesting halacha on Hanukkah and Purim and Cholamoid. You don't eulogize a person. 
except if they're a Tamil Chacham, then you eulogize them. And even if they're Tamil Chacham, you only do it if the mace is there. You don't, let's say you hear of a person who died in Eretz Yisrael, and now you want to offer eulogy on Purim. You don't do that. Unless it's when you hear about it. If it's when you hear about it, then you're allowed to offer a eulogy, even if they're not there, even if it's Hanukkah and Purim. I know they said about Ramosha Feinstein, so he died shortly before Purim, and he was carried, and then they flew him, his body to Eretz Israel. And Rav Shlomo Zalman, who was the head, um, one of the leading sage at the time, he had actually started to get quite upset because everyone used to, I think it was Shushan Purim or Purim when he arrived, that everyone, they started saying, you know, everyone's a Talmud Chochem. So and so is a Talmud Chochem, we can eulogize him on uh, Purim. So and so is a Talmud Chochem, we can eulogize him on Purim. So he actually became quite against this practice of eulogizing people on Purim. I think it was also to take the mace through Yerushalayim on Shushan Purim. I don't remember the exact halacha that he was concerned about. But again, this is that point against uh, eulogize, um, um, he, he was a, a little bit upset that it, and they, people started to treat this halacha lot by saying every second person is a Tabur Chochem and can eulogize him. However, when Rav Moshe Feinstein came, um, was brought, he, he made everyone stop. He told everyone in Yerushalayim that they have to show their respect. He said Rav Moshe Feinstein was by far the Godol Ador, the Sar HaTorah, the leader of the generation in Torah, and therefore him, for him we will. But again, this is, I mean, it shows the respect for Rav Moshe, but this is this halacha playing out in practice. Okay, let's just do a few more lines. Amr Ula Hesbed al Lev. When you see the term Hesbed, it refers to beating on one's heart. Dirsiv al Shodayim Softom. They did eulogies on their heart. Obviously, it doesn't mean eulogy, it means beating on the heart. Tipuch Bayad. That would refer to, Tipuch would refer to clapping. And Kilos Beregel. That would refer to by using, stomping with the foot. So these are different ways that they used to express the grief. Part of the eulogies, but not an actual what we would call a eulogy. If you're doing, if you're doing this kalais, the stamping of the feet, you shouldn't do it with a sandal, only with a shoe, because it could be dangerous. It seems other things could penetrate it easily, like you could do it on a stone and the stone would pierce and thing, or the sandal could slip off and then you'll twist your ankle. So don't do it unless you're wearing proper shoes. Once a mourner has shown, has nodded his head, then we don't comfort him. Because... So, yeah, then we don't sit. Now, there's two interesting chat. Rashi seems to learn that this is because he's being comforted. He nods. He says, look, I'm, I'm consoled. You don't have to comfort me anymore. And others seem to learn, no. What he's doing is, remember, that mourners often wouldn't speak. And how does he tell you to leave? So he nods his head in a, in, a, in a way to say, look, I want to be left alone. And this is something you have to be very sensitive. It's very, very hard. I found it very hard to do. But you've got to be very sensitive when you go sit in a mourner's house to not, I guess, overstay, I don't know if what, it's the right phrase, but not, to not overstay your welcome. You've got to be sensitive to when does the mourner want to be left alone. He doesn't want you sitting there for six hours. He doesn't, maybe he only wants you there for ten minutes, maybe for half an hour. When's the appropriate time to leave? You've got to be very sensitive and leave at the right time. I think uh, I was hoping to get a little bit further, but let's leave it there for today also because Thursday's stuff is very, very short, so we'll be able to catch it up.